one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 162, The Return of York. Now then, I think this is my third episode on 1450, and it was in sooth, a seriously busy year. Normandy has fallen to the French, Suffolk's lost his head and ended up on a beach, there's been a people's revolt, and Somerset, the guy that lost Normandy has been made Constable of England in reward for his incompetence. Surely there could be no more. Surely it was time for the body politic to put up their collective feet and reach for a good book. Well, let me take you to Ireland, where a chap called Richard of York was brooding, possibly gnawing angrily on his thumb. The introduction of Richard of York means it's time for me to fess up. Since reading The Ladybird, adventure from history book about Warwick the Kingmaker as a lad, I have been a committed Yorkist. Don't ask me why, it's just the way it is, and I accept it is probably time to put away those childish things. But old loyalties die hard. So now you know my bias. When you're a 12-year-old, you, or maybe I mean I, tend to accept things at face value. And so, Richard of York was the guy fighting the corrupt Beaufort and the incompetent Lancastrians, the vicious Queen Margaret. Richard was the reformer, there to restore the glories of old that had been lost, at which point I'm on the verge of singing, When a knight won his spurs in the stories of old, he was gallant and bold, he was, and so on and so forth. Of course, in the cold light of adulthood, everything looks a little different. It would be impossible to accept these days a simple, glorious view of Richard of York as an altruistic saviour of the nation, as we'll discuss. But it would also be true to say that so far at least, he's done nothing very wrong. His stint as Lieutenant General of France has been unexceptional, but actually, given the sort of miserable, venal, cowardly mess-up that his replacement as Lieutenant General Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, had visited upon the nation, unexceptional was praise indeed. York was, of course, immensely rich and powerful, the inheritor of vast tracts of land. His marriage to Cecily appears to have been happy as far as we can tell, and certainly, in terms of children, they were going great guns, if that's not an inelegant expression to use in this context. Children were as important to the magnates that fight the Wars of the Roses as they were to any monarch and Cecily and Neville's brood consisted of sons and daughters from Anne, born in 1439, to their last son, Richard, who would be born in 1452. And by 1450, they'd already been playing the marriage game. Little Anne of York had been married at the age of eight to Henry Holland, newly made Duke of Exeter at the age of 17. I am aware, BTW, that we are going to struggle with all these names and interplay of alliances, so don't feel you need to remember all of this. 
I'll do an introductory Wars of the Roses episode and do some website support stuff. But for the moment, forgive me a digression into Anne of York and Henry Holland, Duke of Exeter and Earl of Huntingdon. There's something of the bad gene somewhere in the Holland family. We've had trouble with this lot before. One ancestor, John, had run through a squire in an expedition with Richard II in Scotland, if you remember, because of his vicious temper. And his mother, Joan of Kent, had reportedly died of grief at the shenanigans of her children. Another ancestor had been beheaded by a mob for taking part in an uprising against Henry IV. They appear to be an unbalanced lot, essentially. Poor Anne found herself married to one of the worst. Henry Holland, or Exeter, as we'll call him from now on, was cruel and volatile. I don't know if Richard and Cecily knew at the time to what kind of life they were condemning their daughter, but Exeter was something of a catch for them. Exeter and the Hollands were closely connected with the Lancastrian line. John Holland, the first Duke of Exeter, had married Henry IV's sister. And it was the Hollands' close connection with the Lancastrians that had resulted in their elevation to dukes rather than simple earls. And the Yorks liked being connected with dukes. Unfortunately, the Hollands, estate-wise, were tiddlers. The rule of thumb for the day was that you needed at least £1,000 a year to be a baron or earl, and £2,000 a year to maintain your dignity as a duke. Exeter's income was only £1,002 a year. So, Exeter drove a hard bargain with York and extracted the massive dowry of 4,500 marks. Now, it would be anachronistic to suppose that Richard of York was lining up powerful families in preparation for rebellion against the crown. In 1447, it's almost certain he had no such thought, and he had no more thought of such a thing in 1450. It's just what magnates did, extending their influence through the networks of well-connected men. And although Exeter might be a tiddler income-wise, his family had prestige, and being in line for the throne was an additional major attraction. We don't know what went on behind the lace curtains with Exeter and Anne. All we know is they only had one daughter, lived apart, and in 1472 would be divorced. We know that Anne then married a pretty ordinary knight called Thomas St. Ledger, with whom she was probably carrying on well before the D word was mentioned. As for York and his 4,500 marks, well, only 1,000 were ever paid, and even that would prove a poor investment. Exeter felt he should be at Henry's right hand, not York, and could not see that his character and behaviour deprived him of the support he needed. He clearly saw York as a competitor, and given that he and Anne either spent their time arguing over a toothpaste tube or apart, Exeter saw no reason to support York's claims. Anyway, rather than warbling on about Exeter, I'm supposed to be talking about Richard. So, Richard like any rich and powerful medieval magnate, defined his power partly by the men that followed him, his affinity. Many of the magnates who jostled shoulders with York had great strengths in particular locations, dominating particular counties so much that they controlled sheriffs and courts, and to whom all the knights and gentry of the county would turn to for help. Richard wasn't in that position as it happens. 
This was partly because of the widely distributed nature of his estates, and partly because of his long minority, during which many of the Yorkist affinity may have looked for alternative employment. He developed his affinity through a wide range of knights who fought in France or were administrators at court. By the time he was 39 in 1450, Richard had a very wide network of supporters, which gave him an unusually varied source of information and advice. An enormous and loyal affinity, which gave him an exceptional ability to raise large retinues from all around the country. And of course, through his marriage to Cecily Neville, he was connected to the powerful Neville clan. And though, while initially at least, this was to do him little good, it would later be the bedrock of his faction. Richard's great adversary would be Margaret of Anjou. With Margaret, we have to remember that if a woman in the Middle Ages tries to wield political power, if a woman in the Middle Ages shows the sort of determination and vision we praise in a man like Henry V, she will be torn to shreds by outraged chroniclers. So I come to Margaret with a genuine recognition that we must view every chronicler as negatively biased. And there is much in Margaret's life and character to admire, for determination, persistence and sheer bloody courage, you've got to go a long way to find her peer. But intelligence, vision, statesmanship, there's not an awful lot of that. Margaret is blood, guts, emotion and outrage, a determination to hold on to the power she considers to be hers and her husband's right, and to defend the people she considers her friends, which is pretty much true to say the same motivation as Richard of York. My side, right or wrong, my rights, right or wrong. There's not much in the whole thing that is exceptional, the common good, all that sort of thing. Having said that, there is an element of reform that emerges in York's attitude. Some sense that the right thing needs to be done to put the governance of the realm right. To say that the troubles in Henry VI's reign were simply about power would be an oversimplification. But there's no sign of that motivation in the first reappearance of York in 1450. So, I had our Richard gnawing angrily on his thumb, because he was a worried man, and an irritated man, and he was contemplating doing something pretty radical. He was Lieutenant of Ireland, an official of the Crown. He could not leave England, he could not leave Ireland, without the King's permission. But York was thinking of breaking that rule. Although York was to acquire the patina of a reformer, and of course was to become a rival claimant to the throne, it is most doubtful that reform or ambition for the Crown were his motivations for breaking the rules. It's likely there were two more basic reasons. The first was fear. York was worried about his reputation. Jack Cade had used York's name and that of his family Mortimer as a way to bond together the rebels. The name of a man untainted by the catastrophe in France. And York imagined that some people in Henry's household would have been thinking, well, there's no smoke without fire, you know. Maybe it was York behind the whole thing. And then there'd been that weird incident the king had been forced to enjoy on his way through the town of Stony Stratford, when a peasant called John Harris had stepped in front of the king's horse and threshed with a flail in front of the king to show him how York would deal with the supposed traitors around the king. Harris had suffered a very nasty traitor's death as a result, but it was unsettling. The king had no son, of course, and York was not officially Henry's heir, but the likelihood was 
that everyone thought of York as the heir apparent. So, even if York wasn't behind the goings-on, it's clear some people were thinking of him as a competitor, or at least a saviour, and no king likes that. And in fact, this is the main reason York gave for coming home, to clear his good name. But the other reason was the chief weasel himself, Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset. York really didn't like Somerset. He'd shoved him out of York's job in France, and as a result, York had ended up in Ireland, out of the king's close council and away from the seat of power, his rightful place as the country's leading magnet of the blood. Then to capital, Somerset, plainly in cahoots of the Queen, had been rewarded by being made the new Suffolk, the king's most trusted confidant. York had no doubt at all. That job belonged to York and no one else. This couldn't continue. York had to get home. So it's most unlikely that when Richard of York unexpectedly set off from Ireland to return, unsummoned, to England in 1450, his reason had anything to do with mounting a claim to the throne. But as soon as they heard about it, the king, queen and his household started running around like headless chickens laying eggs. Why is York coming back? Was it rebellion? Hasty, panicky plans were made to stop York landing. So when York's ships arrived at Beaumaris in North Wales in September 1450, he was told in no uncertain terms that the gates were closed and to sling his hook. When he did find a place to land and travelled through North Wales, York learned of a plot to have him imprisoned in Conway Castle and his closest household knight, William Oldhall, killed. Not friendly, not friendly at all. It seems a little mean for the king, queen and court to have assumed that Richard was coming back not to help, but to make trouble. And maybe it's a sign of the faction, intrigue and mistrust that was the compost in which the roses would grow. Third, actually, as Richard marched south towards Westminster, you might be forgiven for making the mistake, as you looked at his massive troop of retainers, as many as a thousand by the time he reached the capital. And here's my chance for a majorly pretentious anecdote from my youth. You may have heard of a philosopher called Wittgenstein. Well, apparently Wittgenstein was in conversation with some sneering Cambridge dons who were mocking the ignorance of the medieval man for thinking that the sun travelled round the earth. To which Wittgenstein asked, well, what would it have looked like if the sun had been travelling round the earth? The point is, of course, that it looked pretty much the same. Richard of York may well have felt aggrieved at being so badly misunderstood, but if you've got some bloke coming at you with 1,000 heavily armed retainers, well, you can be forgiven for checking your life assurance policy. Wittgenstein, by the way, was a cheery sort of chap, attributed with the quote, I don't know why we're here, but I'm pretty sure it's not in order to enjoy ourselves. Though I'm told he said a lot of intelligent things. Anyway, I can now enter myself a pretentious Git of the Year award. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
So both parties, however, did prove intelligent enough to try to avoid the misunderstandings that 1,000 heavily armed men can engender by writing to each other. York wrote letters as he came, assuring Henry that he was very much up to good. But he did also make it clear that he was affronted, that he'd come back in good faith only to be threatened with the king's servants trying to imprison him and accuse him of treason. Whereas, in fact, he'd just come back to help and clear his name. In reply, Henry was calming. Just an nasty misunderstanding, my dear fellow. Some of my loyal folk overreacted. Which is all good, and shows very clearly that we have a while to go before the bridges are finally burnt. We have still a long way from the inevitability of conflict. Richard's mini-army paraded through London on the 27th of September. Again, if Richard was seeking to lower the temperature, he'd chosen a pretty odd way to do it. I, your humble subject and liege man Richard, Duke of York, offer to execute your commandments, he wrote in an open letter to the king, widely publicised through London, and which sounds lovely, but which in fact says, Look, pal, I'm Dickon of York. I'm the most important man in your kingdom. I should be your main man, your number one counsellor, not that evil, useless, pretty boy and loser, Somerset. York marched up to the Palace of Westminster, only to be denied entrance, but he was not to be denied, and forced his way into the king's presence. The meeting, though, was apparently calm enough, but by now York was beginning to assume the mantle of a reformer. I'm not quite sure what else you do with a mantle, actually, other than assume it, but Richard now levelled his fury at the same folk Cade had done, i.e. people he called traitors around the king. For traitors around the king, read incompetence around the king. And for incompetence around the king, read Somerset. The result of the two meetings was not to York's liking. It was essentially a palm in the face. The king was going to establish a council of which York could be one, as would many others. York would be inter pares without any of that primus stuff. We'll discuss it all at a parliament in November, said Henry. York stormed out of London to tour his estates, leaving many of his men running wild through the streets of London. London was a tinderbox. At the mayoral elections there were riots. The Lancastrian arms were ripped down all over London and York's badge, the White Boar, not the White Rose, please note, was put up in its place. Folk were getting tribal. Then when Somerset arrived for the Parliament, there were running battles in the street, even though chains had been hung up across the streets to try and break things up. And on the 23rd of November, York arrived back in town, riding grandly through the city with his sword carried before him. His ally arrived a day later, John Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk. Norfolk had been a violent young man and was united with York in his hatred of Somerset, and in this Parliament would stand shoulder to shoulder with York. And now York was definitely in his reformer role, stoking the fire. Rancorous arguments broke out in the Parliament as members demanded justice be done against those who'd lost France. Things got so bad that while Somerset was eating supper one night, a band of men tried to break in and arrest him, and Somerset had to be smuggled from his house by the river to the tower for his protection, where he had to be based all the way until January. York was in fact rabble-rousing. He'd taken a leaf from the book of Humphrey of Gloucester, riding the intoxicating wave of populism. There was much stage management going on. 
On the 30th of November in Parliament, York had his pal, William Oldhall, who was in fact the Speaker of Parliament, work the group of MPs. As Parliament convened, suddenly a great shout went up in Westminster Hall, Justice against the traitors! Again, temperatures rose, and there's no doubt York was to blame, and that York was playing the game. London was festooned with the badges of the warring mighty. Shall we digress briefly? When I was a lad, when I wasn't reading Ladybird history books, I was playing Kingmaker. Kingmaker was a board game about the Wars of the Roses. As you will, of course, happily accept, there is nothing as good as playing a board game. There is literally nothing that even comes within a mile of a good board game. Though I'm not necessarily saying that Kingmaker was a good board game. It always seemed to end up after 24 hours of solid game playing with a big battle in North Wales. But why, oh why, I hear you ask, am I telling you all of this mindless waffle? Well, one of the great things about Kingmaker are all the crests and badges. By the 15th century, the noble world was awash with badges. Every nobleman had to choose one. It had all started innocently enough with Edward III and his fun court, with pageants and parties and wars against the French, all good, clean fun. But along with indentures for Lord's men, liveries for them to wear with the Lord's colours, the growth of vast, lordly retinues, all wearing their Lord's badges, it had grown to be not only a matter of fun, but also a matter of enormous pride. What you chose as your badge was not simply a rallying cry for your followers, though it was certainly that, but a symbol of how you saw yourself. Symbols had meaning. Take the colour. If you chose blue, you wanted to tell the world about your strength, loyalty, steadfastness. White was about wisdom, cleanliness. A dog for loyalty and a love of lampposts. The acorn meant independence, the bee, industry. I feel a quiz coming on. The thistle, one of the symbols of Scotland I am interested to learn, stands for pain and suffering. I have no comment to make. Whether that's the pain and suffering of having to put up with the insufferable English or the pain and suffering of the Scottish midge, I do not know. So it's a bit of fun, and I might try to create a page on the website with a few of the major families in the Wars of the Roses and their badges. The most famous are, of course, the white and red roses of York and Lancaster, or supposedly so. But let me don the printed flowery dress of the fun-sucking historian and tell you all that actually the white and red rose is really an exaggeration by Henry VII. But we'll come to that when I introduce the Wars of the Roses properly. In fact, families might have many badges. Henry VI himself used the chained antelope, the Lancastrian entwined esses and two ostrich feathers, amongst other things. Richard of York's badge was not only the white rose or the boar, his main badge actually was the falcon and fetterlock, an old York symbol that went all the way back to Edmund of Langley, the first Duke of York and son of Edward III. Richard of York's son, Edward IV, used the sun in splendour, or the sun with streamers and billions of others, actually. There was the boar of Richard of Gloucester, I mean, by golly. The Bahoon family had used the chained swan, a symbol of beauty and grace that I may well choose myself. The Stafford family who at our time in the story of the Dukes of Buckingham used a knot. Some of these traditions have lasted and stay with the counters, and the Staffordshire knot is one of them. There is apparently something of a debate amongst the good folk of Staffordshire about the origin of said knot. 
One story goes that it came from a clever hangman who needed to hang three villains simultaneously. Another point out that as an artistic symbol, it goes all the way back to the Anglo-Saxons. So, it's a knotty problem. Arf, and if you will, arf. But many of these symbols are still with us. So, back to the story. While York stoked the fire, Henry and Margaret and Somerset needed to take the heat out of the situation. So, they organised a symbol of unity, a big party where the king insisted that everyone parade together through London, a vast pageant of 10,000 lords and retainers. A hollow gesture, maybe, but actually it seems to have done the trick, for a while at least. Because in fact, after the initial excitement had died down, York's aristocratic companions in Parliament had got a little tired of the populism and rabble-rousing. It wasn't quite the thing. If cricket had been invented, it wouldn't have been it. Who cares about the rabble enough to rouse them anyway? Loyalty to the monarchy ran deep, and distrust of York's motives, or indeed of any other of their baronial competitors, always ran close to the surface. So enough already. By January, York was sent away by the King to run a judicial commission in Kent, Somerset emerged from the Tower, tempers cooled. It wasn't all over, but for most of 1451, York brooded on his estates which is good and bad. On the one hand, fine, not in London, causing trouble. On the other hand, hate it or loathe it, he was a powerful man of the royal blood. He should have been at the king's side. His complete absence from councils of state that year was a seriously bad idea, a terrible misjudgment by the king that made him look partisan, and a sign not of peace, but of the temporary absence of strife. Meanwhile, the parliamentary dog returned to the bone of finance and good governance. They might not be up with Richard's populism, but that didn't mean they approved of the king's goings-on. And so they went back to the resumption. Last time, they'd told the king to take back all the lands he'd given away to his pals, but the king had fought them off for a year and then emasculated the bill through exemptions. But this time, he had to play ball. There were still some exemptions, and one of the lucky ones was the Queen. Margaret was building something of a reputation for both big spending and the kind of irresponsible largesse of which Henry had been guilty. Margaret had moved into the good Duke Humphrey's old palace at Greenwich, and her accounts show an alarming rate of expenditure. Plus, there are a large number of grants which were marked with the phrase by counsel of the Queen and there were mutterings. Words were beginning to be said out loud that the king was, quote, fitter for the cloister than a throne, and had in a manner deposed himself by leaving the affairs of the kingdom in the hands of a woman who merely used her name to conceal her usurpation, since, according to the laws of England, a queen consort hath no power but title only. These grants, by counsel of the queen, give some credence to these mutterings. And it is a bit difficult to believe that a woman like Margaret would not have stepped forward to fill the gap of Henry's weakness. That she'd turn aside, hold up the hand and say, No, I am but the Queen Consort. I must not speak. I just don't think she was the type. Still, for 1451, that's where the situation rested. Every so often there's an alarm or excursion. In May 1451, for example... 
The Parliament sucked its collective teeth when one of its members suggested that York should be formally made heir apparent. Awkward. Didn't he know that Somerset detested York and would rather eat his own liver than see him as heir? We don't quite know if Margaret's feeling for York were as anti as they were going to be later, but Margaret trusted Somerset, had decided that a challenge to Somerset's authority was a challenge to Henry's and her own authority. And so I think it extremely likely that York would have been off the Christmas card list had it been politically feasible. But 1451 did have some other stuff going on. So we've lost Normandy. Things don't look good now in Gascony either. Charles VII of France had the proverbial bit between the proverbial teeth. In 1450, key towns had fallen and the French had approached Bordeaux, the capital of Gascony. The English had sallied out, only for their cavalry to be disconnected from their infantry and the infantry slaughtered as a result. Not good. In 1451, Charles was going to do the Normandy thing on Gascony, several armies attacking at the same time. In they came, and the result was the same. In the south, the Counts of Foix, consistently looking for advantage since the days of Henry II, finally smelt blood. By the end of 1451, Gascony, ancient inheritance of Eleanor of Aquitaine, had fallen. Bordeaux and Bayonne, the last two towns opening their gates after a siege, and no relieving English force having appeared. Henry had now lost an even greater prize than Normandy, and Somerset again should take plenty of blame. As effectively the king's chief adviser, the situation was his to control. He'd been able to assemble a large army under Richard Woodville, Lord Rivers. Now Rivers had been a relatively small beer type of knight with land in Kent, who'd served in France but in 1435 he transformed the family fortunes by marrying Jacquetta of Luxembourg, who was the Duke of Bedford's ex, had the prestige of being linked to many European ruling families. We don't quite know why Jacquetta decided to throw her lot in with a knight of river's complexion, but it could just be that she just liked the cut of his jib, and the chroniclers after all describe him as, quote, a lusty knight. Without wanting to compete for B.S. Bingo, it turned out to be a game-changer for Rivers and his entire family. His and Jaquetta's daughter, Elizabeth Woodville, would turn out to be something of a looker. There are many parallels between Edward IV and Henry VIII, and there are more than a few between Elizabeth Woodville and Anne Boleyn. Anyway, by my reckoning, that's my third discretion. So... Rivers was the commander selected for an expedition in 1450 to Gascony, and no doubt all fired up and ready to go. But Somerset dithered. Where to send the forces? Calais or Bordeaux? Bordeaux or Calais? Ooh. In the end he switched and swapped until the question became irrelevant. The matrimony of the great Eleanor had been lost anyway. Or had it? Les Francais might think Les Rusbeef are a bunch of plonkers now, but in 1452 the good burghers of Bordeaux had more than a passing affection for the English monarchy, who by and large left them to their own devices and bought all their wine. So information and plans changed hands. The gates of Bordeaux could be opened if a suitable force appeared. And so enter John Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury, something between robber baron and war hero. 
This is the bloke who'd pretty much saved Normandy in 1436, doing Richard of York's dirty work. He was also the bloke who'd distributed his badge of the white dog to 19 likely-looking lads in Bakewell, Derbyshire, and gone on the rampage against nearby Lord Grey. It was Talbot, deputed to lead an expedition to the Bordelais to rescue it from French tyranny. Recalling Talbot was a bit like recalling Martin Johnson to rescue English rugby. The aged, well, 60 or 70 years old, Talbot would have no truck with any namby-pamba surrender monkey stuff. As far as he was concerned, the French didn't like it up him, and wherever it might be, Talbot was going to place a ruddy great sword. The Bordeaux, Bayonne and Baudelais welcomed the English back with open arms in October 1452. They were less enthusiastic in 1453 when Charles's army invaded. But hey, never fear, Talbot is here. Now, Talbot had one speed, fast forward. With Bordeaux under siege, he attacked. The French fled back towards their carefully prepared artillery park, well defended. But what Talbot saw was running Frenchmen. Onwards, he pushed his army right into the teeth of the French artillery and the English were decimated. In the confusion and chaos, the Breton cavalry charged into the English flanks and the English were toast. Talbot's horse was killed beneath him and the old codger was trapped by horse flesh and a French axe finished the story. Talbot had been the archetypal robber baron, hard, ruthless, brutal, violent, robbing his own people from behind the walls of Goodrich Castle. But at least he'd been competent. His death was like the death of chivalry, cut down by the newfangled artillery. It was the end of another era, the Hundred Years' War. No one knew it then, but the Battle of Castillon of the 17th of July, 1453, was a super decisive battle. We don't talk about it much here. And then on the 17th of October, 1453, Bordeaux surrendered. And again, though no one realised at the time, with the chaos of the Wars of the Roses ahead, it marked the end of the Hundred Years' War. It's been a hoot, ladies and gentlemen, but finally, the Hundred Years is over. But don't worry. In English history, as one show closes, another opens. And so next week, welcome to the show that is the Wars of the Roses. So, hopefully that should do you all for the moment, and I have a few weeks of generous donators to thank, so to Simon, Ian, David, Jonathan, Detlef, hello Detlef, CJ and, OK, no mucky jokes, Kathy, Jim, Charles, another Simon, Jabal, Garth, Matthew, Cool, Henry, Brad, Virginia, Jan and Laura. Thank you all very much indeed. Thanks for all the comments on Facebook, iTunes and the website and for the seesaw debate about the return to Anglo-Saxon England. It's a hoot. Good luck everyone and have a great, well, week hopefully. Hopefully.